Normally, you think of entrepreneurs in the business world, but everyone's an entrepreneur in their own life. Coming up with ideas and dreams, facing challenges, taking risks, preparing, inspiring their team in corporate culture. You know, your family is your team. Well, Mark Randolph, founder of Netflix, shares his Netflix story, which is lessons for all entrepreneurs at work and at home. I'm Sarah Heiner, and this is the Bottom Line Advocator Podcast. I'm Sarah Heiner, president of Bottom Line Inc., the number one provider of expert-sourced, expert-vetted, expert advice that empowers your life. I'm thrilled to be talking today to Mark Randolph, co-founder of Netflix. After involvement with several startups, Mark decided at age 39 that he wanted to start his own company. Netflix today is a behemoth, but it started out with a long list of challenges and a very bumpy road as Mark and his partner Reed Hastings worked to disrupt the video rental business. Mark's written the story of Netflix from first idea to taking the company public and everything in between in his new book, That Will Never Work, The Birth of Netflix and the Amazing Life of an Idea. You can learn more about Mark and who he's impacting now at markrandolph.com. And That Will Never Work is available on Amazon and at all major booksellers, and I highly recommend it. I read it, and it's awesome. And now that I've done all the boilerplate reading, welcome, Mark. It's so great to talk to you. Well, thanks, Sarah. It's a pleasure to talk to you as well. Well, and the story, it's really fascinating because, you know, from the outside looking in, the the naive consumer goes, oh, Netflix, that's that huge thing and hugely successful. But it took a long time to get there. It wasn't such an easy road and you didn't magically wake up and become superstar, you know, founder, entrepreneur, Netflix dude overnight. Like there was a lot that went into it. So I'm excited to talk to you about this. Um, I am as well. It's one of those classic uh, 20-year overnight successes. <laughs> uh, and, you know, pe- <laughs> people always think these things spring fully formed, but there's a, there's a lot of twists and turns along the ways. And she's exactly and, what we're going to talk it, about because it's not so easy, and it doesn't just, it isn't even like you come up with the idea and it goes straight on. Um, so let's talk, let's just start out, um, because you were involved with actually a whole bunch of startups before you got onto Netflix. So how different or how similar was Netflix to your past experience as an entrepreneur and founder? Uh, Netflix was was unique in that it really came about at a time um, when the internet was enabling a whole different way to approach a business. I mean, I again, I, I Netflix wasn't my first startup. It was my sixth startup. Um, and so I certainly had been around entrepreneurship before, but never had able, able to have something happen quite so quickly um, as Netflix did. In the past, I was involved with more mundane things like magazines and mail order companies. Hey, 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 we're, um, ma- we're mail order and magazines. They're not so mundane. <laughs> no, so Caref- I can speak with authority about how, uh, how great those businesses are. <laughs> Just had to put a plug in for our little print business. Anyway, I interrupted you. Go on. Oh, no, that's okay. So uh, I was just saying that, you know, so all of a sudden when uh, most of my experience in the past was doing direct marketing, you know, was mailing catalogs and doing junk mail, um, which was great. I mean, I was passionate about that for 20 years. Uh, But when the Internet came along, I kind of realized this really empowered a whole new way of communicating with customers. And Netflix was really the application of that. Well, and there's an interesting thing, actually, because we'll just talk briefly, we'll digress. Um, direct mail and direct marketing is about testing, right? And you, you're able to test and you learn a lot 
versus like my background was originally in general advertising where you threw this stuff out there and you had no idea what was happening. And the exciting thing I think I saw you mention someplace was that the cycle time of testing now online and for Netflix was so much tighter. Whereas for me, when I send out a test in my mail, it takes me 12 weeks to get an answer or make a decision. And you had this tight cycle time. You could test and pivot and test and pivot. Yeah, it really is remarkable. What a, In retrospect, what a tremendously great preparation for me, all my experience in direct marketing was. Because I, you know, I did do a lot of direct mail. I also did catalogs. I also did magazine circulation. So I had this experience with testing. I had experience with mailing things. I had a, the experience with subscription. And well, what a coincidence that all three of those, and of course with testing, and what a coincidence that all three of those, four of those things would all be come to bear when we started Netflix. And you're right, when I was saying that the internet enabled this type of marketing on, a, on steroids, it's exactly what you were saying. Before, personalization used to meant that I could send a specific subset of a catalog to a thousand different people, which was better than sending the same thing to a hundred thousand. With the internet, I can show a unique thing to one person. Everybody sees something differently. And like you said, I know instantaneously almost what the results of the tests I'm doing rather than waiting. Well, we did a bit better than 12 weeks, but rather than waiting. Uh, we, we were uh, bill me, so it took weeks. longer. If ca- <laughs> cash businesses learn faster than bill me businesses. So. Yeah, the, you know, the thing is that we probably could do a whole different podcast just to explain, exchanging direct marketing stories. But uh, Another day. day. Right now we're going to talk about Netflix. We're going to talk about entrepreneurism. And part one of the things that I actually want to talk about with you as we go along is that, you know, you were an entrepreneur in business, but there's so many um, people in a lot of ways, people are entrepreneurs in their own lives that the idea of taking risks, the idea of coming up with ideas, the idea of setting a direction, whether it's your family or your friend group or your own personal mission in life, that so many of those aspects that you brought into Netflix and you brought into other startups is really a, a core, core set of values and behaviors for everybody to apply in their lives. Um, so that's really where... Well, I, go ahead. I'm really so glad you brought that up because that's exactly why I wrote That Will Never Work, is because I kind of wanted to share with everyone all the things that I've learned from my 40 years as an entrepreneur, because I totally agree that a lot of the tips, a lot of the tricks, a lot of the attitudes, a lot of the approaches that I've used for 40 years of building and starting companies are the exact same things that anybody could use when they have some kind of dream they're trying to turn into a reality. Yeah. So let's start at the very beginning because just coming up with the idea, I think a lot of people don't even know, like they've forgotten. Somewhere when they were six years old, they had all sorts of ideas and dreams. And as we got older, that got cramped down. So I think even at the most base, people don't even know how to come up with ideas. And your process, what you and Reed went through in your daily car rides, I think is so fascinating. So can you share that, you know, just the ideation process that you started with? Well, certainly. Um, one of the there's a lot of ways that people in Silicon Valley who are professionals at this sort of thing look for ideas, and we look at business models and we look at new technologies. But there's a fundamental one which Reed and I used, and which everybody could use, and where you just basically look for pain, and you say what's broken, what's not working well, what's unclear, and 
Reed and I would play this game as we were commuting back and forth to our job together. We worked together for a while prior to Netflix. And we did this on these commutes where we brainstorm ideas. And we'd come up with all kinds of crazy things. And then we'd use this time in the car to debate them. And then when I'd get to the office, I'd run down and do all kinds of research. And the reality is that we realized that brainstorming is just brainstorming. And it's a necessary part. Because most of these ideas, pretty quickly, you learn either, hey, someone else has done it, or you realize why it's not going to work. Um, and we did this for hundreds of ideas as we were searching for uh, an idea for a new company. I mean, you know, one of them, for example, was doing personalized baseball bats, which we would shape on a milling machine to your exact specifications. Another one was shampoo by mail. Another one was customized dog food. I mean, you are all, all over the board. We were because it wasn't it wasn't so much that I had this passion. Oh my gosh, I have to start a company which is going to rent movies via the internet. No, I, I was just looking for ways to solve problems that I saw in myself and and other uh, people's lives. Yeah, and these and, a lot of these were coming oh, out of your life, right? You had a son that was playing little league, and you saw an opportunity, or there was I don't remember the connection with the dog food. Exactly right. right. These are not, this ideation process is not something that's limited to people who are trying to start a business. This could be anybody who is in their life and looking for some way to make their life a little better or make their job a little easier or find some kind of more financial comfort. Everyone has ideas, but the reality is no one ever tells you, where do you go from here? Yeah, well, and even just being aware of it. A lot of people don't even, like, they don't intend to it. They're just kind of sheep in their lives. Exactly. (laughs) That's a good good term for it. You can use that. Reed and I, we'd say we'd get these ideas. In fact, one of the things we were bouncing around as an idea was video rental by mail. Because we were both frustrated by the experiences we were having at our video rental stores. You know, Reed got this astronomical late fee. We were all frustrated by the selection there. And that was an idea. And it was a bad idea because my research at the time showed that the only way to rent video was on VHS cassette, which was too heavy and too expensive. Um, And that got rejected. And then a few weeks later on our commute, we learned about this thing called the DVD. And again, said, wow, this might actually change things for this video rental by mail idea we have. And so rather than leaving this idea in our head, We said, let's test out at least one piece of it. And so mid-commute, we turned around and drove back down to Santa Cruz, where we lived, and uh, went to a used music store and bought a Patsy Cline music CD, and then went a few doors down and bought a little envelope that you'd kind of mail a um, greeting card in, and put a stamp on it and addressed it and sent it to Reed's house in Santa Cruz in the mail. And it got to his house in less than a day without breaking. And That's amazing. That was the moment we kind of said, wow, this actually yeah. might work. Yeah. Well, and I think one of the really cool things was you didn't stop. Like You continued to play with the idea. A lot of people, they come up, they, get a, they hit a brick wall, and then they go, oh, well, it's not going to work. And that you let it iterate and that, you know, maybe you put it on the shelf. I don't know how, what the timing was from the time that you realized VHS wouldn't work to DVDs came along. And, you know, that like, oh, well, this here's another way to solve that problem. Again, people get afraid of doing that, 
versus to be open to, wow, there might be a different way, a different way, a different way. And in fact, that different way, different way, different way is an inherent part of the process. I mean, the reality is, and I hate to burst people's bubbles, the idea that you come up with that in your mind is this genius thing that you can envision it changing the world, I hate to break it to you, it's a bad idea. And the problem is you just don't know why or how it's a bad idea. And the only way to find out why and how it's a bad idea is to figure out some way to test it. And I don't mean, oh my gosh, I have to raise money, I have to hire people. I don't mean testing it that way. I mean doing something as simple as going down and doing the equivalent of buying the used Patsy Cline CD and the postage stamp and figuring out whether one part of your idea actually works or not. Yeah. And what's going to happen is you're going to go, oh, this kind of worked. But it's then going to plant three more ideas in your mind. Well, maybe I'll try it this way. And you'll try those things. Yeah. And it'll lead you on this fascinating treasure hunt of following clues about how you might actually be able to get this thing to work. And that's not only the key to making these dreams that you have become realities, but it's in a tremendously fun and exciting part of doing something different. Yeah, let me also point, like reinforce, you made a comment about their ideas are going to be bad. And we seem to be living in this hypersensitive, oh, you've insulted me world. And saying an idea is bad isn't a personal offense. Like that it was just, it was feedback. And when you're saying bad, it doesn't mean throw it in the trash. That I think people need to also like shift their perspective and their sensitivities to, it might, a bad idea isn't a bad idea, it's just not fully formed. Or it may be a bad idea and you throw it away and there are 9,000 other ideas that are gonna come along tomorrow. So it's not like you just mortgaged your house to come up with that idea. Exactly right. I mean, the, the, the criteria for your idea does not need to be this thing which you can envision becoming uh, Amazon or Netflix or something like that. It, and, and if you lower your standards, it's fine. And the, and the truth is, the truth is, the re- I called this book, That Will Never Work for a Reason. And it's because when I came home and told my wife the idea for what became Netflix, she said, that'll never work. And all of us have that experience of being told that'll never work. And so part of this is confidence. It's recognizing that, sure, a lot of the times they're going to be right, but we're never going to really know unless we try it. Yeah. So what I'm encouraging people to do is, if you have some idea, don't let people turn you off by their judgment, because the truth is nobody knows anything. You have to try something to find out whether your idea is any good. So. What, do you, what does it cost you? Give it a shot. Cost you Put it out in the real world and let real people tell you whether it's a good idea or not. So how, not, people, not so-called experts. Speaking of real people, so how important was it to you that you had a partner through this process? That people, again, some people feel like they have to own it and do things on their own and that it's, they're a failure if they need input or if they need um, to, to share that process. So what was your thought on having a partner through this? I actually think having a partner in these things is critical. And it, the person doesn't need to be all in, because in fact, at the beginning, um, you know, Reed wasn't all in. He wrote the first check. Uh, he was the chair of my board, so to speak. But I was really, you know, in effect, running the company, and he was, we were chatting in the evenings. But having someone to bounce ideas off of is so helpful. Sometimes it's very lonely when you're pursuing an idea. 
And having someone else who's invested, and I don't mean financially invested, I mean emotionally invested, is critical. And not just that, you can't do everything yourself. Some people have skills and expertise and approaches that you don't. I mean, it's the true meaning of diversity. I mean, Reed's background was he was a math teacher. Uh, my background was a direct marketing person. And so each of us brought to this problem totally different ways of approaching things and experiences and backgrounds, and that ended up being critical. Some people, and now I'm going to segue slightly, so pardon me. That's okay, you can be in charge. One of the big things you hear when someone has an idea is they go, I can't tell anybody, because if I tell anybody my idea, they'll steal it. Yes. Or if they tell it, uh, someone will do it before then. And what I've learned is it's nonsense. You want to tell everyone your idea, because some of them will say, well, that's interesting. I heard about a company doing something similar. Or, that's interesting, I heard someone who tried that, and they had some interesting experiences. Or, even better, someone goes, oh, I love that idea. How can I help? Yeah, well, and not only that, Those bringing... don't happen if you share it. Exactly. Well, not only that, bringing it back to the personal entrepreneur that you want to share. So, because everybody in your personal life, everybody's dealing with, how do I get my kids out of high school safe and alive? Right? How do I keep my marriage going? How do I manage, you know paying for college, all those things that everybody's dealing with those kinds of things. So you want to share that in terms of how do I create a great family experience? How do I fulfill my life's journey or destiny? So, you know, it's, it, it's, it's definitely true. In fact, it's, it's exactly what you are doing with your business, which is giving people insights and trip, tips and advice and sharing with people what's worked for other people. Um, it's the collective, um, which is powerful here. Yeah, exactly. The amazing thing is people say, I have this problem and I'm trying to figure out some way to solve it. And what a surprise. Other people have the same problem. Other people have figured out other ways to solve this. And by sharing your ideas and the things you're trying to address, you do get people contributing in all kinds of ways you never expected. Yeah. All right. So let's talk about fear. Um, Because some people, a lot of people just won't even go there because they're afraid. You know, you you were starting this company. You had three young children. Your wife looks at you and says, that'll never work. <laughs> How's that for motivation? Um, so how did you deal with the fear? How do people overcome their fear? Again, be it business where you're now, you're playing with Reed's money, your friend's money and other people's money, or in the, again, in their personal life to be able to, to step out of the path that they thought they had to take. So the first thing is that fear is a very natural part of doing something which hasn't been done before. And you'll find that with practice, fear turns into excitement. But fear doesn't need need to be scary, dangerous fear. Uh, There's that fear sometimes when you're traveling and you're in a restaurant and you pick something off the menu and you go, I really don't know what this is, but I'm kind of curious, but I'm a little nervous. But that's fine, and you find out. Um, and and it, what, the reason I bring up that example is that overcoming fear is through practice. And it's by not having the very first mountain you climb be Mount Everest. Mm. You can't jump from one to the other. And just the same, when you're thinking about starting something new, again, whether it's a business or whether it's something in your life, you don't want to start with the very, very biggest challenge. That is scary and too difficult. 
Start with something that you think you can accomplish. Scale your aspiration to your ability. I mean, I was fortunate, and I do talk about this a bunch in the book, and then I began my risk-taking when I was very young with very small, relatively inconsequential ventures that if they didn't work, no problem. And little by little, I began to realize what I was capable of so that by the time I was almost 40 when I did Netflix, I was prepared to take much, much bigger risks with much, much larger amounts of money and many more people. Yeah, that's a great point. Now then, so then you there you were, you started the company, and then, as we said, that it wasn't the straight, you know, rise straight up to the top. In fact, you talked about, I guess, you know, a number of years later when you went and met with Blockbuster and, you know, you guys were suffering, you were really kind of struggling on the brink of, of failure. Um, so there were all sorts of hurdles that you came along the way. So, so there's the piece of fear, okay, great, I practiced it. You know, I, you know, I've done little things and I've overcome it, which is what, of course, what builds confidence. Um, but then how do you deal with the hurdles along the way? Again, because every time it's easy to get scared, every time, you know, your server crashed or the, you know, you went out on a date with your wife and something blew up, I don't know, it didn't go right, or your kid came home drunk and they're 16 years old, I don't know what. Um, right? <laughs> There's all sorts of hurdles that come along in our lives, let alone health hurdles, you know, you had a heart attack when you didn't, but someone has a heart attack and now they're afraid to go back to their life as it was, right? Whatever it is. Like. Well, anything you're trying to accomplish comes with um, steps along the way. And certainly starting a business uh, is that same thing as well, is that each you're trying to do something that hasn't been done before, at least in your own experience. And it's not like one and done where you solve one problem and boom, it's finished. There's a new problem every day. There's a new hurdle coming up every week that you have to climb over. When you get to the top of one little peak and you think you're finished, you turn and look up, there's an even bigger one rising up beyond it. And part of it, though, is picturing this not as, I need to have this stop, I need to be done, I need to be finished. It's recognizing that this journey is actually part of the exciting process. I mean, you you referred to this whole blockbuster story, which I do tell in, in the book, but it's us getting to this point and thinking that the problems we face were insurmountable. We're running out of money. Our little rental by mail thing isn't working very well. Um, and the only out at the time we thought was selling ourselves to Blockbuster. And I really envisioned as we found ourselves flying to Blockbuster that day, thinking, oh, thank goodness we're being rescued by being able to sell it. But the interesting thing is when we actually flew to Blockbuster and they turned down um, the chance to buy us on that trip. Big mistake for them. Big, huge. I'm sorry? Big mistake for them. Uh, Certainly (laughs) one of the larger mistakes, I think, in the history of commerce here. Uh, But uh, what it was for me, though, was the sense of, okay, I've got to tackle this on my own. In other words, there's not going to be a deus ex machina, which comes down out of the clouds and saves us. We've got to keep persevering and lo and behold uh things worked out so did you ever when again people get get embarrassed easily they're they've, they're so prideful did you ever get embarrassed and have to deal with shame with each with any of these hurdles so i'm almost on the brink um blockbuster turned me down like again try i think people get so uh, you know I, I always go back to psychology of the humans right how do i help them past these different types and and shame is one thing that can come up through this process. I'm 
this is going to sound silly. I'm I'm a little I'm fairly shameless. I <laughs> okay, which I, is good, and that may be uh, part of your skill set that helped you through it. It's the other side of fear in a way, because certainly, I mean, I do a lot of climbing and mountaineering and surfing and a lot of action sport things. And in that realm, fear is the fear of physical injury. But in the realm of doing things that haven't been done before and pursuing your dreams, it's a different fear. It's a fear of failure, which is a fear of shame. It's a fear of embarrassment. It's a fear of someone saying no. And so, of course, you feel shame and embarrassment um, and fear of failure. But as I said, little by little, you realize that you can get over it. For example, as a great example here, um, one of the things you have to do when you're starting a company is you have to raise money. And you have to go around and hat in hand and lay things out for people and ask them to invest give you, say, $25,000 to start your company. And don't forget, this is an idea that everyone says that will never work. But years earlier, I had this incredible experience where as part of a training for an outdoor program, they dropped me off uh, in the streets of Hartford, Connecticut, with no wallet, no money, no ID, and I had to spend three days in the city by myself. This was, no a, resources. this was a phenomenal story. And, yeah, and, and, in, in the yeah. book I talk about what that was like and ultimately how I had to panhandle, literally make the naked ask of walk up to someone on the street, put my hand out and say, can you spare some change? And it was remarkably hard, remarkably scary, but hunger is a pretty good motivator. And uh, eventually was able to uh, overcome my fear of doing it. It never got easy, but with each successive ask, I got better and better and better and eventually learned how to do it. That ultimately it was just being honest and connecting with someone that, can you help me? I'm really hungry. Um, but it was a perfect example of being feared, uh, being scared and mm-hmm. being ashamed and getting over it by practicing one person after another until finally it became more comfortable. Yeah, that was and an amazing story. And after that, asking for $25,000 was nothing. <laughs> if you could get 25 cents for a cheeseburger, you were in. I never, so here's where, totally off the record, but it, it really I questioned me. How come while you were on the streets of Hartford that you never tried to get a job for a couple of days, like go be a, oh, no, it's a, a dishwasher or something? Uh, uh, I'll come back on the, I'll come back on your podcast for my next book. But there's some there's I could there's there's a long story about my exploits on the streets of Hartford, and in fact, initially that was my first attempt was I was going door door to door, store to store, trying to get someone to give me some odd job. Yeah, that's what I, I would think to go try to. It was a fascinating experience. Lots of interesting things happened. Wow, interesting. Um, then the, the idea was to put me in a position where I was uncomfortable, yes. where I was out of my element. And so, you know, I talked about, I gave you the example of asking for money, but again, it was very much this opportunity to practice getting over my fear um, and practice being in a position where I was uncomfortable and having to address it. And in some ways, those are all cumulative experiences I've had, not just on Hartford, but in the mountains that prepared me 
that when it came time to taking a bigger risk, like starting Netflix, I was in a great position to do so. Yeah, actually, so I wanted to talk about your outdoor experience. And my, I'm proud to say that my children have a lot of experience in outdoors. And it's amazing to see what that has done in their preparedness for life. So talk about it a little bit, because you were an outdoorsman. You went through a lot of leadership training outdoors. And, you know, people think about, I have to have my MBA. I had to go to a good college in order to be successful. And yet, I think there was a tremendous amount of life lessons that you learned on the on the trail like and through the outdoor experience so it, i i sincerely tell people that almost everything i've learned about being a successful entrepreneur um, i learned in the mountains not at school uh, and i was fortunate that when i was the ripe old age of 14 years old my parents packed me off to Wyoming to participate in this program called the National Outdoor Leadership School, or Knowles, which uses the wilderness as a classroom to teach leadership. And they send you out for a month at a time. And we don't forget we're 14, but we have um, instructors with us. And each day we'll do a small group trip. You know, we're, we're hiking from camp to camp, whatever the case is, in small groups. And each time there's a leader of the day. And that person, this 14-year-old, boy in my case, is tasked with being the leader. Of course, being followed by the real leader, pat, pat, mute in the back, but having to make decisions about how long do you go between a break? How long is the break? Which pet route do you take? Um, how long do you stop for your breaks? Do you stop for someone having a hot spot uh, or do you wait until it's a full-blown blister? And these sound like small and consequential decisions, but they're decisions of real consequence that a 14-year-old is getting to make, and more importantly, getting to see the results of those decisions very soon afterwards. And I went and did programs with that school for three or four years as a student, and then I ended up being an instructor, and then I ended up being a course leader, each time getting additional experience in this same thing, which is having to make decisions, for example, climbing a mountain, you all know that we are going, which is the summit, and you'll all know when you get there. But there's no predetermined route. There's no predetermined speed. You have to accommodate for the strength of your group. You have to communicate clearly exactly where you're going and why and how. You've got to assess the strength of your group. And these are all the exact same things that you do when you're starting a business or enlisting anyone to help you in building your dream. And these are all experiences that I had a chance to do with real leadership with real consequences when I was 14. And most young adults never get real leadership with real consequences, even when they're you know in their uh, 20s. Yeah, absolutely. Well, and then also going back Let's, to the hurdles, how important, you know, when you're, when you're out in nature, you always have to be prepared for the unexpected, which is exactly what goes on in business as well. Suddenly there's, you know, who knows, you know, a million things. You, you, know, you, you say, wow. What a nice bluebird day. It can't possibly rain. It's perfectly safe to start our climb without a, a raincoat. And uh, believe me, you learn a very important lesson when you're huddled on a ledge three hours later in a hailstorm. In lightning position, uh, right? Exactly right. And, and the nature is, does not care <laughs> your gender or your educational background or your political beliefs. It's a non-discriminating uh, agency 
that will do what it needs to do. And if you're not prepared, um, you're in trouble. And again, it's the same that it scales so beautifully to business or to anyone um, who's trying to, uh, to, to uh, pursue a dream. You've got to recognize that. Well, I don't know. I'll, stop, I'll stop it this way. Stuff happens. <laughs> yes. And if you haven't thought in advance about what might happen and begun preparing for it, you're going to be in a world of hurt. And at the same token, you've got to put yourself in a position that if you get a lucky break, you start hiking up and you go, it's pretty cloudy, we can't make the summit, but let's just go two-thirds of the way up to the point where it's safe to be, and let's see what happens. And then lo and behold, it clears off, and you make the summit because you took advantage of a lucky break. All those things are great lessons for life. Yeah, and then another piece of it also is how you how you respond to those challenges and disappointments. Again, people have, I think that we have this, a lot of people have a challenge in dealing with disappointment. I mean, how disappointing is it when you got up at three in the morning because you wanted to go peak a mountain and then either someone on your team had a blister and you had to turn around or the weather came in and you had to turn around. So the, the hike that you planned on and prepared for for all this time, you don't get to do it, right? So yeah, there's how a, you respond it's, it's, to all those challenges. Thing. We all talk about, oh, it's the journey, not the destination, but you spend enough time in the woods and you begin to live that and recognize just how true it is. It's so cool hearing that you kind of, you're, you have so much time in the uh, outdoors with your kids, and that's it's one of the really fun challenges of parenting to bring your kids on these things where there's genuine delayed gratification, where you're, you have a five-year-old and he's trudging up this trail and he's going, this is completely unfun. Oh, yeah. And then seeing them two hours later on the top with the view, with the M&Ms, of course, which you brought along as the critical ingredient. Of course. And you can almost see their little brains spinning, making this calculation of, wow, a little bit of suffering actually brought me this tremendous piece of reward. And confidence. And wow, what a life lesson that is. Yeah, and I have to say, I will, I will admit, so I joke that I was brought up in the malls of New Jersey. My husband was an outdoorsman, <laughs> and I'm very proud as a parent that I gave my kids the gift of being in the outdoors and the confidence and the knowledge and that they actually brought me onto the trail. So I've learned through them and heard their stories. But, you know, any parents listening here, I think it's one of the most valuable things you can do for your kids. Get them off that couch and get them outside into nature. Yeah. All right. It's a, it's a mm-hmm. tremendous teacher. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, it's great. And, 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 you know, I, as you know, you know, in the book, I certainly do talk a bunch about how um, these lessons from being outdoors translate to people who have any kind of challenge they want to overcome. Yeah, it is. It's just vital. And, you know, the more that we write, it's not just, I mean, there's the challenges. There's all sorts of health benefits. So I won't go down that path. I'll digress. Let's talk about culture. <laughs> <laughs> That'll be our third, uh, our yes. third podcast. We're going to have the yeah, whole series. It's going to be the Sarah and Mark series of uh, life lessons. Um, let's talk about culture because corporate culture um, and family culture, and we haven't talked about you and your family culture as well, but the, the culture at Netflix was unique, and it was an extension of you and who you are and how you act um, in terms of you had something you called responsibility and freedom was kind of the core core tenets of the Netflix culture. Well, it's really true. I mean, uh, culture, because culture is not what you say. It's what you do. 
and people all think, oh, to have my strong, you know, in a company sense, I need to write down what the culture is. I've got to get everyone here to brainstorm, and we've got to carve it in the cornerstone of the building. But it's simpler than that. People model off of what they see the leaders of the organization doing. And then, yeah, here's one more of those segues. Um, children model their values off the behavior of their parents and their peers. Duh. You <laughs> yeah. You can walk around telling your kids, young man, honesty is the best policy. And then they see you being dishonest. And believe me, they're going to model off what they see you do way faster than what you say. I couldn't and agree more. In building, in building Netflix, it was exactly the same right. thing. Netflix now is famous for its corporate culture. But all of that arose from how Reed and I treated each other, how we treated our employees, how we treated our customers. I mean, we had this principle that sprung from the mountains that I, I call, it was called, we didn't refer to it then, but it was a freedom and responsibility. When you're an early stage company, and I tell these great stories in the book about what it was in those first year, everyone was so busy, we didn't have time to say, here's what you have to do and here's how you have to do it. We defined the goal we said, here's the mountaintop, and we said, you figure out the best way to get there. And lo and behold, people love that. They love giving them the responsibility to accomplish something and the freedom to figure out the best way to do so. And those things have absolutely scaled at Netflix. Well, like, and Netflix, for example, you know, I was just going to say, and Netflix would have I'm been sorry. a very different company if it wasn't you in charge. Because it's such an outgrowth of who you are and your it's, values. It's a, it's, yeah, correct. It's not, I mean, back at the beginning, where we didn't say to each other, all right, you have two weeks off and you need to approve what day you take a vacation days. We just did what we had to do when we had to do it and made sure it got done. But we also made sure we took care of ourselves. I left every day, every Tuesday, without fail at five o'clock because I know I needed to preserve my relationship with my family and my kids. But that didn't mean other days I didn't stay until one o'clock in the morning if I had to. And that type of attention to, you have the responsibility to get it accomplished and the freedom of how you want to do it, to Netflix as a big 7,000 person organization. For example, you know, you know Netflix's um, vacation policy? There isn't one. You know, Netflix's expense policy, there isn't one. They have no policies because basically they trust people to do the right thing. And all of that sprang from how Reed and I treated each other and how we treated our employees. How different is your culture of the wow. Mark Randolph family from the culture that you grew up in and that your wife grew up in, like that you created a new culture? It's, um, it's funny, but I'm going to say not very much. Yeah. I mean, I came from a family that said, if you have an idea, do it. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I said, boy, it'd be kind of fun to do something. My parents would never say, oh, you're out of your mind, young man. Do it this way. They'd say, give it a shot. See what happens. I mean, seriously. Um, and it, it helped me learn that the process was... Um, the fun part and kind of in fact the best way to understand my family is that to, to know that my dad on the 
the eve before I started my first job out of college, actually sat down and wrote down on a ruled yellow pad uh, something called the Randolph Rules of Success um, and handed it to me. And I thought, what are, and these were all cultural things. Right. There were things like, um, be courteous and considerate at all times, up and down. Takes great care and, and uh, attention. I, mean, I have them all memorized by now. Be prompt. Um, quantify uh, when possible. Be open-minded but skeptical. I mean, it's really, yeah. <laughs> there, there are these really interesting um, things, but they were all in some way shaping um, my approach to problem solving. And you had mentioned at the very beginning about was there fear? Um, was there um, shame? And a lot of the, my lack of fear or my able to get over my fear, my over my shame came from, I think, how my family treated risk-taking yeah you're really fortunate and you know they had to be very forward-thinking in terms of understanding to put you out into the Knowles class and to put you in the situations that they did to give you those opportunities to grow what prompted it seemed like a really weird question and I'll tell you what prompted it um, because again I'm going back and forth between business entrepreneur and personal entrepreneur and I see a lot of families that are trying to break legacies of dysfunction in their in their own families so families that have had a culture of we don't talk to each other families that have had a culture of some kind of substance abuse whatever it is that so that now you have the next generation and it's very hard for people to have the courage to come up see the problems figure out how to fix it and then have the courage to create their own culture and their own new pathway in their lives um, so that's where that was coming from. Yes, yeah, it's, it's an it's it's an interesting thought. I mean, I am certainly not a, um, a psychologist, um, although I do play one on TV. No, <laughs> I'm not a psychologist. You can be anything on a podcast. And, uh, yeah, but it's funny. It, it's it, it, it can be put so easily into the shape of I have a problem um, and I have an idea, and where do I go with this? And yes. the answer is not to say, I need, I have this huge dysfunction in the family and it's multi-generational and it crosses many, many, many people. And if you try and solve the full problem all at once, it's an insurmountable one. And like any of these problems, you have to break it apart and say, let's try. Let me do one thing. Let me do one act with one person one time and see what happens. Um, and that's how transformation happens. It's not by waving a magic wand. It's not by one fell swoop. It's not some magic sale to Blockbuster. It's by taking that first small step and saying, I'm going to start acting one way with one person or for one brief moment and see how that changes things. Yeah. And that gives you the courage to take two steps with two people and then four steps with four people. And then over a small period of time, the same way as if you were climbing, making a long climb to the summit of a peak that was going to take you eight hours, it all has to start with those first few steps. Yeah, exactly. And you know that's why it's the lessons that are in your book, the lessons that you know helped you build Netflix, the lessons that held you helped you have the courage to say, "I'm going to leave the office every Tuesday at five o'clock in a world where people never slept." That 
you know, those and people need to that they can translate those no matter their home, their personal life, that those are all the core skills and lessons to learn. All right, one last question for you. Go ahead. I interrupted you go. No, no, I could I could talk forever, so it's probably good to cut me off. <laughs> but I, I, you know, I've talked I've talked a lot in, in you know these last bunch of, the last few, few minutes here about talking about following your dreams, and in some ways it's trite because it's probably the most dispensed advice in the history of the world. Follow your dreams, but no one ever tells you how. And if I had to sum it up, I'd say in the book that will never work. It's really where I try to show you how where I try to give you all the things that I've learned over the last 40 years as an entrepreneur and realized those can be applied to anybody. And it is the steps. It is the process. It's the, it's the way to approach the problem. Yeah. And I think the humility with which you write the book and your acknowledgement of the hurdles and the fears and the challenges helps people realize it's just that it's okay. Yeah. I commend you for if your I've learned one thing as an entrepreneur, it's that I'm not that smart. <laughs> that the thing some evidence that to the I've contrary to be successful, anybody can do. It just requires an approach, and I've learned that those things can be taught, and I'm I'm doing my damnedest to try and do that. All right, one last quick question: Any advice that the 2019 Mark Randolph would give to the 1997 self? <laughs> well, for, for the first one is to tell myself back in 1997, and in about nine months, a little company called Google is going to start, <laughs> and I want you to buy as much of that stock as you can. Thank you very much, Michael <laughs> J. Fox. <laughs> absolutely right. <laughs> no, and, and more, more seriously, I would absolutely tell myself, Mark, you're scared. Um, this is a big step. You have a bunch of people who are responsible. You're responsible for the success of this company is what will pay their car payments, their car insurance, their mortgages. But hang in there; it's going to be okay. All right. Well, Mark Randolph, you're an inspiration. Thank you so much. Your website is markrandolph.com, and the book that will never work. Can't recommend it highly enough, and it's available on Amazon and all the major booksellers. So, thank you so much, Mark. And thank you, Sarah, for your time. This has been a pleasure. I'm talking to Mark Randolph, co-founder of Netflix and author of the book, That Will Never Work, The Birth of Netflix and the Amazing Life of an Idea. Netflix is one of the great business success stories of recent years, but Mark's success as founder and leader relied on skills and concepts that actually apply to the entrepreneur that's inside everyone as they come up with new ideas, lead their family cultures, and solve problems on a daily basis. This is just one example of what our flagship publication, Bottom Line Personal, is all about. We work with thousands of top experts, not just in creating new ideas and improving family relationships, but in all aspects of your life, including financial planning, great gift ideas, how to save money on travel, insurance snafus, smart tax strategies, improving your relationships, and so much more. Bottom Line Personal has been helping people lead more informed and vibrant lives for over 40 years with our actionable and double fact-checked advice. Subscribe today and get a free bonus book, Bottom Line's Best Bets, full of some of the greatest tips from our experts of all time. Just go to bottomlineinc.com forward slash BLP. That's bottomlineinc.com forward slash BLP.